Good morning, Northside. So before uh, Jeff went on sabbatical and we were talking about this um, day for this sermon, he encouraged me and asked me to give something that would spur us on to Thanksgiving. And so that is my hope and that is my desire for this morning is that you would be spurred on to Thanksgiving for our Lord. And so um, for that, I chose a passage in Colossians and we're going to be looking at Colossians 1, 15 uh, through 23. And before we read, just something to keep in mind, uh, Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians who are, in, who are facing this false teaching, facing this false teaching that your salvation is not secure by Jesus Christ alone, but you need Jesus Christ plus something else. And I'm sure we feel that oftentimes as well. My salvation is secure with Jesus Christ plus how I'm feeling today. Whether or not I've sinned this past week, um, like, like that ever happens, right? Go a whole week without sinning. Um, but, but these are the things that we, we really do wrestle with and the things that we really do feel. And so the hope this morning is that as we take a look at who Jesus Christ is, who Paul writes, uh, uh, or what Paul says about who Jesus Christ is, that we will be um, spurred on to Thanksgiving uh, this week and forevermore, of course. So with that, let's look at Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23. Hear the word of the Lord. He, that is Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you... Who were once reconciled, or who were once, I'm sorry, alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Father God, we indeed thank you for your word, that in your word you make yourself known to us. And Lord, though you make yourself known to us in your word, we are unable to understand unless you also grant us your Holy Spirit and give us this ability to understand. And so, Father, I pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds this morning through your Holy Spirit. Father, give me the words to speak, for I cannot speak your words apart from your working. Lord, let this this awesome uh, in deep, rich well of, of um, who Jesus Christ is, be able to uh, open up our hearts to thanksgiving to him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus spoke these words to God the Father in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. 
And what's awesome in, in, about this chapter is that it gives us a glimpse into the, uh, this, a conversation had between the members of our triune God. They're speaking about eternal life. And that eternal life is knowing God. And so if eternal life is knowing God, the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, then our highest priority must be striving to know, both intellectually and relationally, God the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And so our text this morning is one that drives us into the depths of our triune God by explaining for us and teaching us um, some significant and awesome truths about who Jesus Christ is. And it's truths that we can only recognize through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, for those of you here who desire after eternal life, let us drink deeply from this fountain that these words have opened up so that we might overflow with praise and thanksgiving to our Almighty God, who has given himself to us so that we may possess him, so that we might know him, for it is he who is the eternal life that we desire, and it is he who has come to make his home with us. And so what we'll learn this morning and what Paul explains in this, in this uh, chapter is that Jesus Christ is your creator, your redeemer, and your king. And because he is creator, redeemer, and king, whose love makes his enemies into family members, we must direct our thanksgiving to him and to him alone. And so our first point is Jesus is your creator. And I want to ask the question, have you ever thought about what it means or or why it is that God has created in the first place? Often we can answer that question by saying, yeah, it's for his glory, that's why he created. And yes, it's a great answer, and that is very true. But what is his glory here in that question? I was doing some reading this week, and, and this is what it, um, I came across, that Jesus, or the Lord God created the world through Jesus Christ in order to share his eternal life with us. It is because he delighted to share his eternal life with us that he would or that he had created the world. And I hope that is something that we can see this morning. So Jesus Christ is your creator. And in order for Jesus to be considered creator, then he must be before that which is created. That, That makes sense, right? He must be before that. And that is part of what Paul is proving in verses 15 to 17. You see, he's writing of Christ's pre-existence in eternity past with the Father, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. And he does that by calling Christ the image, the firstborn, and making plain in verse 17 that he is before all things. And so we need to ask the question as well, is what exactly does Paul mean by firstborn of creation? Because many have used that term to try to point to the fact that Jesus Christ is a created being. Because, of course, how else does someone get born but by being made or being created? But actually, that that is a misreading of the text because it assumes that God is someone like us. He's just bigger and he's just better and he's just greater. But but actually, God God is not like us. He is in a completely different category of being. He is the creator. We are the creature. But this is good News And because God is in a different category from us, Scripture sometimes will use metaphors to uh, talk about a truth about God. And so by using this word firstborn, Paul is using a metaphor to speak about how Christ is supreme. 
He is the second person of the Trinity and supreme over all things. And so in the context in which Paul is writing, that word firstborn, um, it was typically the rightful heir of all that was in their father's household. They would inherit the power and the authority that the father had over the, their house. And Jesus also speaks to this in John sixteen fifteen, where he says, all that the father has is mine. He's pulling on this understanding of firstborn. And earlier in, in the, uh, the Gospel of John, Jesus makes this statement in, uh, in 5.26 where he says, As the Father has life in himself, he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And, and all that is going to prove that Jesus Christ is God. He is saying it over and over again in different ways. But Jesus is God the Son and he is not created, but rather he is the one through whom all things have been created. And therefore, he has authority over all things. And that is what Paul goes to tell us in verse 16, right? It is by Jesus Christ, uh, by him, all things were created. So he was the agent, the instrument. And, and what exactly does he mean by all things? He explains for those of us who might be wondering, well, what do you mean exactly, Paul, by, by saying all things? Well, he says, everything that is in heaven and on earth, everything that you can see and that you can't see, Everything has been created by the triune God through Jesus Christ. That is the stars in the sky, the planets in space, you and me. Everything. Kingdoms and authorities, rulers and powers, all of these things come from our God. And so not only do all things exist by Jesus Christ, but in Him, in Him, all things hold together. The author of Hebrews also tells us that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Both of these statements are getting at this something, that Jesus continues to sustain all things. And over the summer I was reading this book on the attributes of God that was awesome. And this chapter uh, talked about God's omniscience, his all-knowing. And it paired it with his almighty power. And so what he says is that, God knows all things because what he knows exists. Let me put it negatively. If God does not know something, it's not because he, he doesn't have knowledge about something. What, he doesn't know something because it does not exist. Think about that for a second. The author says this. If something or person escaped the mind of God, then it would not exist in the first place. His thoughts are not like our thoughts, where we are told something, and the moment after we're told it, if you're like me, or you're like Chris, who struggled with ADD, he reminded me of this, then that that goes right out of our minds, right? We forget immediately. But not so with God. You see, the very fact that he is, is know, knows something is evidence, or the very fact that you exist, I'm sorry, is evidence that he knows you. That's an awesome and terrifying thing. It's terrifying because it means that the only reason why, like we said, you and I exist is because God is mindful of us. But also, we have to remember that that means he can see everything about us as well. He knows everything that is going on within us, every thought that we have. 
And while that is also a terrifying thing, the good news is that if he sees that, if he knows everything about you, if he knows um, what is going on, he knows exactly what you need. If you are exposed before him, he knows exactly what you need. And he promises to give to us. Additionally, if you ever struggle with thinking that God forgets about you or that you are outside of his scope or that that he is far from you, take uh, hope and comfort in this. If you are breathing, if you still exist, the only reason why you exist is because God, our God, is mindful of you. He is never far. He is never, never far off. He is near. Excuse me. He is near. And that's awesome. And so maybe a question that gets sparked in your mind, though, is how does this square with all the evil that I see in the world? Are you telling me that Jesus created all things and that he is also sustaining those wicked empires and the evils and the injustices that I see and experience in a daily basis that I see and hear on the news? And that's a, a, a tricky question that, that has a, a, you know, a difficult answer in some ways, um, but one thing that we might say, or that we need to say, is that Jesus is indeed sustaining all of creation. We just read that here. So yeah, he is. But on the other hand, Scripture also tells us that God is good, and he only does good. That's Psalm 119, 68. You are good and you do good. Therefore, he cannot create anything evil because he only operates according to his nature, and his nature is good. Rather, evil and wickedness that we see stems from our own hearts, stems from the fall, stems from this broken world that we live in. But the thing that we must keep in mind as well is that through his continual sustaining of all things, he is also showing his mercy, his mercy to wicked, sinful people like you and me, like we once were, if we know Christ. Because you see, if his justice were to fall immediately on that, none of us, none of us would be singing here of how great and awesome the mercy of our God is. See, he is good and he does good. And so, with that being said, we must exercise our faith, we must rest our trust in the fact that God acts as he says he does. And that he is wise beyond, far beyond our understanding. Paul also says something else peculiar in verse 15 where he says Jesus is, he is the image of God, image of the invisible God. And if you know your Bible, then maybe, you know, your mind's going all the way back to Genesis where God said, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness. But I want you to pay attention to the way, uh, what, what Paul says. He doesn't say in our, in our image or after our likeness. He says Jesus is the image of God. He's making this uh, a definitive statement that Jesus Christ is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He existed in eternity past, always as image, reflecting the Father, reflecting his character and his life. That is why Jesus says, if you know me, you know the Father, because he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God. And you see, what um, Paul is also, or what you know, Genesis is getting at is that that is something that we were created to take part in in a creaturely way. We were created to get to enjoy reflecting God's image to all of creation. The goodness and beauty of who our God is. We were, we were created to display His glory. But instead, Adam chose to display his own glory. To serve himself, right? 
And what happened is that chaos entered into this world. And that is why we feel and we live in such discord, internal discord and external discord. That is why we see and understand and recognize this wickedness that is in this world is because we were living outside of the bounds of our created purpose. And so it's, it's, um, I want you to think about driving down maybe a busy one lane road with a double yellow line that's going through uh, the center, separating the two lanes that are going the opposite direction. And in order for this act of driving to be done safely, in order for you and whoever is in the car with you to arrive safely at your destination, every driver must obey uh, that invisible barrier that is signified by that double yellow line. If one person were to cross that, chaos would ensue. There would be harm that would be brought on the one, the one driving and in the, whoever's in their car. The harm would be brought on those in the other lane and even those around, right? Depending on what would happen. But you see, the same is true of us regarding our created purpose. For if we seek to live outside of the bounds of what God has created us for, chaos enters in. Sometimes we, and we, we experience that and we live in that, you see. Living for our own glory ushers in this chaos. And then maybe, maybe you are saying, well, well, who is this God that, that he should reign over me? Who is he the one that says, uh, that has that, um, that capability to make that call? Well, as we have been looking at, I mean, he is creator. That means he owns you by the fact that you are created, by the fact that he is sustaining you by being mindful of you. And he has every right to determine what our purpose is. But listen to this. It is a, the sweetest and most wonderful purpose that he has given us to take part in his eternal life by reflecting his glory to all of creation. But when we don't do that or as we live outside of that, we've lost God, you see. We choose to have no part in him. We choose to turn away from all the riches that he promises to, to bestow upon us. And we deserve to be cast away. We deserve to have justice fall. But again, that is not the end of the story, right? Paul goes to all this trouble describing who Christ is so that we might rightly know that our redemption is secure. Our redemption, you see, is founded on the one and the same God who created all things, He is the one who claims to be our Redeemer, our only Savior. We read that over and over again in Isaiah 43. I'm the Lord your God, your Redeemer, your Savior. And it's to this point that we now turn, Jesus Christ is your Redeemer. And see, while Adam failed in his role as image bearer of God, the true image of God would stoop down to enrich us by revealing to us his glory And that is seen through redemption. You see, in order for redemption to take place, the sovereign creator, the one who sits in the heavens and does whatever he pleases, needed to enter into our misery. And the one who does whatever he pleases did so. He entered into our misery to make himself known to those whose capacity to know him had been ruined. And one early church father in the, in the second century actually wrote this about, about, um, God's condescension. He said, God, who is beyond all comprehension and boundless and invisible, he made himself visible, comprehensible, and within our capacity to know him. Why? For the purpose of making us alive by welcoming us into his eternal life. 
Eternal life is knowing God the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And unless our God accommodated to himself to our understanding, to our fallen uh, understanding, we would never have received life. But, you see, God has come in Jesus Christ. He's come so that we might receive life, so that we might, as this church father said, participate in God. And then he says that that happens through knowing him and enjoying his goodness. And that's why verse 19 is so astounding. You see, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ. Why? For the reconciliation of all things. And that's also a peculiar statement, a reconciliation of all things, because Paul defined that earlier, right? He said, everything that is in heaven and everything that is on the earth. This is what Jesus has come to reconcile. And so what we see here is that Paul's understanding of of redemption is actually much more than just you and me, our personal salvation. It's never less than that, but it's also actually much greater because Jesus Christ is a a great and awesome king. And so um, we see that actually as we think about what was affected by the fall. Well, in Genesis 3, we see that the ground was cursed. Because of the fall. And in Jeremiah 23.10, we actually read that the, uh, because of this curse, the land mourns. The land, our earth, is, is crying out for redemption. And in Paul, uh, Paul writes this in Romans, 8, uh, in Romans 8, where he writes that the whole creation is, is groaning, awaiting redemption. But you see, Paul is telling us that Jesus Christ is a cosmic redeemer. He is renewing the whole of creation. He is ushering in a new heavens and a new earth. He is purchasing new life. He has purchased new life for you and for me. And he's done that all by the blood of his cross. You see, through our redemption, he is leading us onward into a land where all sad things are untrue and only perfect love remains. So that evil that we experience here and the wickedness that we endure, the injustice that we experience, that we see, that we even feel, Jesus Christ has defeated it all. And so the creator of all things is also the redeemer of all things because redemption is nothing less than this recreation of all things. And that's what Paul is, is saying here um, when he's talking about Jesus Christ as being the firstborn from the dead. Not only does he rule over the old creation, all that is ruined from the fall, but also everything in the new creation. And it is by virtue of his resurrection that we also have the promise of resurrection. You see, and so through his uh, owning us by creation, Jesus Christ has also come to own us in a special way through redemption with our faith, when our faith is in him and in his work. So he is doing nothing less than purchasing our life in his redemption. He is, God is owning us. And in his owning us, we are the ones who receive a gift. Normally when you purchase something, you, you get, uh, you actually benefit from what is you're purchasing. But not so with the Lord, right? He is, in, in purchasing us, he is giving us himself fully. That is the gift we receive. We receive God to be ours. That's actually the central promise of the covenant of grace. That I will be your God. And you will be my people. 
And that's actually the comfort of the one who is lamenting in the book of Lamentations, in, in Lamentations 3.24. And what's going on in that book is that the, this person's life, everything that they hoped in, has fallen apart and crumbled to the ground. And what they say is that the Lord is my inheritance, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who depend on him, to those who search for him. And the Lord God's making himself known to us. He gives us himself. He opens up the endless joys of his eternal life to you and to me. One, per, uh, one person put it this way. Who can give an expression to this ma- uh, the magnitude of this happiness? It consists in being overshadowed with God's gracious presence. To be surrounded with his supporting and preserving omnipotence. To rest in his unfailing faithfulness. To rejoice in God's eternal fullness, majesty, and glory. To be enlightened by his light, goodness, and love. To be satisfied with his all-sufficiency. To lose oneself in his infinity and his incomprehensibility. To bow before him with delight and love. To be subject to him and to worship him. This happiness is... Um, such that neither I can comprehend it nor can you define it. Rather, we must lose ourselves in its infinity, exclaiming, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. All we can say, because of the depths of, of, of how wonderful the Lord God is, is Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And so I think back to when uh, my family purchased our first dog and our only dog. Um, we are cat people now, apparently. She was cooped up in his cage because we got her from a pet store, right? So you know how it is. You go in, you see this wall of animals that are cooped up in these cages. And they would get their food that they needed. They would get their water to drink. But she was confined in this cage. But that's until we delighted in her, right? Until we chose to purchase her. Until we chose to bring her into our family, to take her into our home, and to call her our own. And who gets the better end of the deal there? Probably the dog, right? But you see, this is the same thing that the Lord our God does for you and for me through Jesus Christ. You see, you were confined in your own cage of sin and misery. You were hopeless, helpless, weary. And he opens up the cage to his own detriment. And as he opens it up, we recoil back in fear, trying to escape. But instead, he reaches in gently. He takes us out by the hand. He delights in us. He brings us into his house. You are mine, he says. And I am yours. Let our hearts overflow with this joy. Let us praise and ask the Lord to open us up to the beauty that is found within that truth. I am your God, and you are my people. We see that in Christ. And so it is in these actions of creation and redemption that the Lord our God, through Jesus Christ, he displays his supremacy over all things, both in the old creation and in the the new creation, the new heavens and earth that are to come. Through creation and redemption, Jesus Christ is fulfilling his office as our king. And a good king, he always seeks the good of his people. And you see, King Jesus has sought our good by revealing himself to us 
purchasing our lives, and then finally sending forth his Holy Spirit to give us continual guidance in his life. So Jesus Christ is your king. And you see, ancient kings, after they would subdue their enemies, what they would do is march back to their kingdom with their conquered enemies in a trail behind them. This could be referred to as a victory march. You see, King Jesus is doing the same thing with us through the Holy Spirit. Rather, instead of conquering through violence and oppression, the way Jesus conquers is by pouring out his love upon us. It is his love that makes his enemies into his children, you see. And so as he is leading us back, not merely as conquered enemies, but actually as family, it is through his Holy Spirit that we are allowed to take part, to walk in this um, victory march. This victory march where he is presenting us holy and blameless and above reproach before God our Father. And so, as he is, is doing this, it's going to bring us to the end of ourselves. And maybe you ask, why? Well, if you look to verse 21, we'll see why. It's, it's because who we once were. Verse 21 says this, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh, by his death. You see, walking in this victory march of Christ is hard work. It is something that he enables us to do through the Holy Spirit. But it means that we must leave behind that which we once loved, the kingdom of darkness that we once lived in. Because it is in that kingdom, it is in that false love that we are actually being killed. You see, these false loves are all the things that we sort of run to when we are stressed out or confronted by our own weakness and the things that we find comfort in in the midst of that. What are the things that you find comfort in in the midst of your stress? It could be food. It could be some relationship or friendship. Maybe it's your career. Maybe you run to pornography or some other sexual sin. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe you find comfort in knowing that at least your children are going to be a success. You see, anything that we find our comfort in that is not the Lord our God, while it may be a good thing, if it's not the Lord our God, it kills us because it leads us away from life. And so Jesus is calling us to leave behind the hope we put in those things and to put our hope in Him. And that's hard work. That brings us to the end of ourselves. But in doing so, what is Jesus doing? He is bringing us to life in Him. The good king seeks the good of his people. And our highest good is found in our almighty God who freely gives himself to us that we might be his. And so this is a lesson that I've actually been learning over the past three years And it's only taken me three years to realize I've been learning this lesson. Um, You see, I've been going to seminary, as many of you know, and it's hard. And I grow frustrated that it's hard because I really expected it to be easy. 
out of my own foolishness. I used to think that ease and God's will for my life always went hand in hand. That was some belief that I have. And maybe you feel that way too. So that if things were easy in my life, that means that I was in the center of God's will. Or if I was seeking after God's will, that would mean that life would be easy, right? So what's more in the center of God's will than seeking to study his word and and, uh, share it with others, right? So it should be easy. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So these past three years have actually been some of the hardest and the scariest times of my life. Hard. Why? Because I come face to face with my own weakness and inadequacy daily. Scary because I've placed my confidence in my own strength and my own ability to do things. I've placed this confidence for comfort in, a, a pay, in getting a future job with a paycheck that, that I would think would give me peace. But you see, what happens inevitably throughout the semester is as work starts to pile up and I get to the end and I realize I can't do this. I grow terrified. Because what I actually put my hope in was something that that is fleeting rather than resting and trusting in God's promise for me. And I'm sure you do the same thing. What are those times where you are doing that? How do you feel in the midst of that, right? Feel as though we have nowhere else to turn. And because I have nowhere else to turn, I do cry out to the Lord. And you know what? Not once has He ever left me out to dry. Not once has he failed to provide. And I'm sure you you know the same thing. But how would we be able to see that? How would I be able to see that had I not been brought to the end of myself? Had Had Jesus had not taken me alongside in his victory march to lead me out of my sin and misery? You see, the Lord is a good king. And he brings us to himself And so the Lord has called us to himself. And as we continue in the faith and the victory march, we are bound to experience this hardship. But listen, this is part of the pattern that he has woven in. We can even see this in Moses' life in, uh, in Egypt, right? The Lord calls to Moses to go and lead his people out of Egypt to go and confront the most almighty, the, the mightiest king of the time, Pharaoh. The Lord gives him the promise, you will be successful because I will be with you. And he shows Moses his almighty power. We have seen God's almighty power in, in raising Jesus from the dead for us. Moses, he shows Moses his almighty power. But Moses, out of a desire for, for ease and comfort, starts to make excuses. He says, you know what? I'm, I, I can't speak well. I'm just going to go back and, and tend this, these sheep because I know that that's the easy thing to do. And often for times for us, it's easy for us to run back to those false loves, to not step in, cry out to the Lord for help in the midst of our battle with, with our sins. But you see, if Moses was to go back, he never would have experienced the Lord as a faithful father, one who provides. The Lord says, look, who made your mouth? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go and I will be your mouth. I will teach you what to speak. What he's saying there is, Moses, I have created you for this purpose. And I can enable you and I will enable you to fulfill it. The same is true for us. You see, when Jesus brings us, uh, when, when he brings us into his family and his victory march, right? 
He has made us new creatures. The Lord is saying, I have enabled you to walk in this path. You have the Holy Spirit in your hearts. He is leading and guiding you. Trust me. And that often leads us to the end of ourselves. It's often hard work. But, like I said, and as you have experienced, the Lord provides. Because He is a good King. Because He is a good King. And so the promise of living under the rule of the righteous and almighty King Jesus is held out to all who hear the gospel. And it is under this rule that life is found. It is only found in Christ. Therefore, if you are living a life of sin, if you are the one who is saying, who is this Jesus that he should be reigning over me? Beware, because he will return and he will show you who he is. His mercy will run out. His justice will fall. But that's not the end. As we see in Christ and as we've been talking about, the good king has come to give life to his people. Therefore, turn from your sin. Trust in Christ. Bring your sin to him and he will forgive. For he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. As Jim reminded us as he was praying. Eternal life is found in knowing the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. He's shown his glory through our redemption and, it is, and he has welcomed us in to share in that glory through faith in Jesus Christ. He's rendered himself knowable so that we may have life in him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are indeed a good and gracious king. You are the almighty God. We praise your name, Jesus, that you have made yourself known so that we might come to life in you. Encourage us this week as we go forth, O Lord. Let our minds uh, spend time reflecting upon how awesome and wonderful uh, you are as our almighty king. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.